Well, good morning, Sojourners. It's great to be back. It really is. Thank you so much for all of the messages, the emails, the texts, asking my family how I was doing for praying for me. It's really, uh, really, really appreciated. And uh, it's been a, uh, you know, I got sick over the past couple of weeks, but I'm back and I feel, I don't know, this morning people were asking me, how are you feeling? I said 97%. Somebody else asks, how are you feeling? All of a sudden, I'm 98%. Then I was 99. I'm like at 107 right now. So I'm feeling terrific. I'm feeling great. It's really, really good to be back. And uh, that incident that uh, Abner mentioned, that was just absolutely hilarious. We both thought we were coming up to preach. That was like the... I know Greg has mentioned the Joab (laughs) comparison. I felt like that was the culmination of the job coming together (laughs) when it comes to the message. So, but no, it's been this has been a terrific week too with Shepherd's uh, Conference happening. Just such an encouraging time, and uh, I thank God that uh, I got sick before Shepherd's Conference because I was feeling well during Shepherd's, and I was able to interact with so many people and to uh, do some of the seminars. So it was a great, great time. And one of the seminars that I did was actually what I want to talk to you about today, and this is a passage from Zechariah chapter 12. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Zechariah chapter 12, and we'll look at a portion of that, and we'll see what God did, the extent to which God went to save us. And I've titled it, as you can see, The Death of God and the Deliverance of Sinners. And when we think about what God did to save us, It's an amazing, it's an astounding thought. It's an astounding concept even. You know, from the very beginning of scriptures, when you think to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, it already says in the very beginning that the Messiah is going to suffer to save us. And you go throughout the scriptures and you see this. And you go to the very end, to Revelation, and you see that the Lamb was slain in order to save us. And this is this passage here, Zechariah chapter 12, is another monumental passage where you see in a very clear way, in a very precise way, that in order to save sinners, in order to save us, God died for us. Now, as you think about this, the words, the death of God, these are jarring words. They're difficult words. Death is the end of life. And yet God is the God of the living. God created life. God breathed life into man. In Genesis chapter 2, we saw that a couple of weeks ago. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. In Acts 3.15, Peter is preaching, and Peter calls Jesus the author of life. So how can we speak of the death of the author of life? These are difficult words, but we speak about this because the scriptures speak about the death of God. And that's exactly what God says about himself in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. He says, they will look on me, on God, whom they have pierced. And then the only, as you think about this, the only way that this is possible for God to die is for God to become man, and then for God to die as man, as God-man. 
That is the only possible way for this to happen. I remember when I was an undergrad, I had a Jewish friend who I talked to about the scriptures all the time. And I remember coming to him and talking to him about Zechariah chapter 12, specifically about this passage, and I showed him, I, I said to him, look, it says, God himself says they will look upon me whom they have pierced. And I said to him, look, God says that he is going to die. And how can God die unless he becomes man? And what I was trying to show to him that he must become man so that he is God-man when he dies and that this God-man is Jesus. But he rejected, my friend completely rejected this concept. He said, God cannot die. It's impossible for God to die. He said, they'll look at someone else, but they're not going to look at God. God will not die, he said. But the text is absolutely clear. God says, they will look on me whom they have pierced. And this is the text I want to look at with you guys today. Zechariah chapter 12, verses 10 through 14. This passage states that God was pierced and that God therefore does die and that with the death of God, the entire nation of sinful Israel repents. So let's take a look at this. Let's read Zechariah 12, 10 through 14, and then we'll take a look at it verse by verse. The passage reads, Yahweh is speaking here, and he says in verse 10, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication, so that they will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. And they will weep bitterly over him like the weeping over a firstborn. In that day, there will be great mourning in Jerusalem like the mourning of Hadad Rimon in the plain of Megiddo. And the land will mourn each family alone, the family of the house of David alone and their wives alone, the family of the house of Nathan alone and their wives alone, the family of the house of Levi alone and their wives alone, the family of the Shimeites alone and their wives alone, all the families that remain, each family alone and their wives alone. As we look at this passage, we see Zechariah revealing to us We'll say four observations about the death of God and how the death of God achieves the salvation of Israel. And the first observation that Zechariah begins with is that God is the deliverer of sinners through the death of God. Zechariah's prophecy here begins with God directing the attention of all the people of all of Israel to the death of God and stating how this will achieve the deliverance of sinners. And the point here is that God is the one who does this. Verse 10 says, I will pour out. Yahweh says this, I will pour out. God is the focus of this passage. God initiates this act of salvation. And the implication of this is absolutely clear. If God doesn't take this first action to have the people look at God and to understand the death of God, they will not look at God. The only reason that they look at God is because God takes that first action. And this look upon God will result in salvation. Just as you remember, the Isra- just like the Israelites looked at the serpent on 
uh, that, that Moses made, the bronze serpent, in order to be healed from the bites that they received from the fiery serpents and they received life. So they will look on the death of God in this situation and they will receive salvation. But they will have this look of faith only because God will initiate this process. And the way that God will bring this about is through the work of the Holy Spirit. The text says, Yahweh says, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication. In order to save sinners, God gives his Holy Spirit to do the work of conviction, to do the work of repentance. And God says the very same thing in Ezekiel 39. We, Pastor John read a few past verses from Ezekiel 37. And just a few chapters later in Ezekiel 39, 29, God says this. God says, I will not hide my face from them any longer. In other words, I will forgive them. They will repent and I will forgive them. I will have a relationship with them. And the, the question is, how so? What happened that you will now have a relationship with Israel? And he says this, for I will have poured out my spirit on the house of Israel. The only way that God's people will change, the only way that they will repent, is if the Holy Spirit does the invasive and the overwhelming work within the hearts of the people so that they repent. And you can see in this passage that this will include all of Israel. It says the house of David, which is the royal house, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, which are the regular people. So there is no distinction between the upper class or the middle class or the lower class. All people are equal when it comes to salvation. And Revelation 1.7, John goes even one step further and he says that this applies to all of the people even beyond Israel, all of the Gentile sinners as well. In Revelation 1.7, John says, <clears throat> Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. This applies to every single sinner who repents throughout history. But in all of this, God is the one who gets the credit for initiating the act of repentance within the sinners. And again, this is true in all of redemptive history. God is always the one who initiates and who completes this salvation of people. Luke 19.10, a very familiar passage. It says, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. He seeks and he saves. And Hebrews chapter 2.10, chapter 2, verse 10, calls Jesus the author of salvation. He is the one who initiates this. So what we see in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, is actually characteristic of God throughout all of the scriptures, throughout the entire plan of redemption. It is God who is the deliverer of sinners. He is the one who designed the plan. He's the one who initiates the plan. He is the one who finishes the plan of salvation. And the way that God achieves this plan of redemption here in Zechariah 12.10 is by directing the focus of the people 
on a specific historical event. And that event is the death of God. And this is our second observation from this passage, the death of God. God directs all the attention of the people on a humanly unfathomable revelation, the fact that God has died. Listen to Zechariah 12.10 again. Yahweh says, I, that is Yahweh, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me, that is Yahweh, whom they have pierced. Since God is speaking here, and since God is speaking about himself, God is saying that he is going to die, that he is the one who is pierced. God declares about himself that God dies. This term pierced, it describes a vivid, literal, and, and violent, and a fatal blow that takes the life of a person. In Numbers 25.8, remember, there was an Israelite man named Zimri, who took a non-Israelite woman named Cosby, and they went into the tents in front of all of Israel, and they engaged in sexual, illicit sexual relations. And then Phineas, knowing this, in his righteous anger, he takes a spear, and he went to them, and it says that he pierced. Then the parents will take an, a, a weapon, and they will pierce their own child, to his death. Again, this is the same verb that we see appear in Zechariah 12.10. God says about himself that he is pierced, that he dies. And the fact that God dies is obviously a challenge for us, for all humans to think through. It's a challenging concept. This was difficult to the Israelites throughout the Old Testament community, throughout all of the Old Testament time, and I think it's even still hard for us to process this, the fact that God dies, even though we have the New Testament. So to say that Jesus died, of course, we don't make light of this, but we understand this. To say that God died, it's a difficult thing to say or a difficult thing to hear, but still we understand this because we know that Jesus is God. To say that Yahweh died like Zechariah 12.10 says, that prompts us to say, are you sure that's what the text says? Well, not only does the text say this, Yahweh himself says this. They will look on me whom they have pierced. And we can see that this was a challenge to the Israelites throughout history when we look at some of the translations, some of the interpretations that they made over the course of the past years, because why would God die for sinners? It's a challenging concept. But we see them wrestling with this passage, Zechariah 12.10. Uh, there is a uh, translation of the Old Testament into Greek. It's called the Septuagint. And when we look at this translation, we see that they really struggled with this passage. 
Listen uh, to this translation. This was done about 250 or so years before Christ. But this is the translation into Greek of verse uh, 10. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me because they have danced triumphantly. So instead of whom they have pierced, the translation says because they have danced triumphantly. But how do you go from peers to dance? Well, first of all, this indicates that the translators wrestled with the text. It was hard for them to uh, uh, capture or understand the idea of God dying. So they're trying to fix the text. But still, how do you go from peers to dance? Well, in Hebrew... If you take the letters of the word pierce and you move them around, you rearrange them, you actually get to the word dance. So it's like taking the word bat in English, like you swing a bat, and you rearrange the letters and it becomes tab, like you click on the computer, tab, right? Or you can take the word uh, listen, you rearrange the letters, and you get the word silent. It's the same letters, but they're arranged in a different order, and the word becomes a completely different word, and that's what they did here. And once you do this, you no longer have the problem of God dying. The problem is solved. There's another translation, the Targum. This is from Hebrew into Aramaic, and this was done sometime after AD 70, so after Christ. And here's what the translation says in this passage, in this uh, text. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of mercy and compassion so that they will seek me because they were exiled. So here they changed the words whom they pierced to because they were exiled. Right? And you look at this and you think, man, this is like the message translation. This is completely (laughs) different. Again, the issue here is that you can't have God die. So you ask the question, you try to figure out what else could the text be saying? And here the translator decided that uh, the word pierce does not mean pierce. It's not literally pierce. It's maybe figuratively, maybe causes pain, but it's not to die. Nobody dies, according to the translator. Instead, the Israelite people suffer when they go into exile. But again, this is an attempt to solve the problem of God dying because this is such a difficult concept. There is a commentary called the Talmud, a Jewish commentary, written sometime around 600 AD or so. And here they wrestle with the same passage and they ask the question, who is the me in the passage? It seems like it's God, But God cannot die, so who is the me referring to? And so this commentary concludes that this must be referring to the Messiah, but not Jesus, a different Messiah, a Messiah that they called Messiah ben Yosef, or the Messiah son of Joseph. And in their view, this, the Messiah is not God. The Messiah is not 
divine. But this again shows that the death of God is something that troubled the interpreters, the the translators. And let me give you just one more. These are various manuscripts that were found, later manuscripts, in, in Hebrew. And so these manuscripts, some of these manuscripts, change the word from me to him. So it says they will, the Hebrew text, actual Hebrew says they will look on me whom they have pierced, but these manuscripts change the word me and it says they will look on him whom they have pierced. And this solves the difficulty because the him is not directly God. It's maybe not even necessarily God. Anybody else but not God. But these manuscripts show that there is a clear agenda. They cannot have God die, and so they change the text. Now, at this point, as you see this, you might be thinking, well, what about John 19.37? And you can go there if you have your Bibles. John 19.37 says something very similar to this or almost exactly the same thing. John 19.37 says, uh, John is describing the crucifixion, Jesus hanging on the cross. And so he refers to Zechariah 12.10. And John writes there, he says, and again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they have. Well, the text of John seems to be just like the manuscripts. But when you look at the actual words, it's actually different from the manuscripts that uh, Zechariah 12.10 has where they change the words. Literally, the text of John would translate, they shall look on the one whom they pierced. And it's a significant difference. And this difference indicates that John is definitely doing something different from what the manuscripts are trying to do. But John still says they will look on the one whom they have pierced, not on me whom they have pierced. And so we can ask the question, why does he do that? We'll look at this a little bit more in just a minute, but the differences in the language between John and the manuscripts, it shows that John is not trying to avoid the death of God, but he's actually identifying the one, the God, who dies on the cross in the person of Jesus. John is trying to have us see God on the cross, while the manuscripts are trying to remove the death of God from the text. So we can ask then, why do all of these instances try to remove the death of God from the the scriptures? Because it's unfathomable. It's difficult to see God dying for sinners. And yet God himself says this very thing that he is pierced for the sinners. So we can ask the question, well, how is this possible that God dies? And being on this side of the cross, we understand that there is only one way that this is possible, and that is that God becomes man. And that this man is God, and that he dies as a man, and that this, God, this man is fully God, and this man is fully man. He is God-man. 
And that is who Jesus is. And this takes us to the next observation in Zechariah, the deity of the Messiah, the deity of the Messiah. In order for God to die, he has to become man and he has to die as a man who is God. Listen to Hebrews 2.14. Hebrews 2.14 says, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, since we are humans, Jesus himself likewise also partook of the same. In other words, he also partook of the flesh and blood. He also became man so that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death. In other words, God became man so that he would be able to die. And John tells us in John 19, 37, that this is exactly what happened. John tells us that Jesus is the God who is pierced according to Zechariah 12, 10. John describes Jesus hanging on the cross. And this makes John remember the words of Yahweh in Zechariah 12, 10. And so while thinking of the words of Yahweh, And seeing Jesus on the cross and beginning to speak of Jesus, John says, again, another scripture says, they shall look on the one whom they have pierced. John takes the words of God from Zechariah 12, 10, they will look on me whom they have pierced. He applies them to Jesus on the cross, and he says they shall look on the one whom they have pierced. John is saying that the speaker of Zechariah 12.10 is now hanging on the cross. The me of Zechariah 12.10 is the one of John 19.37. But as we look at this passage, we can still ask, why does John say the one, or as we saw also translated as him, instead of me. And what John is doing here is he's speaking about the death of God from his human perspective, from his vantage point. When God was speaking in Zechariah 12.10, God was speaking about himself. So he said, they will look on me. Now that John is speaking in John 19.37, John is speaking about God. And so he switches the perspective and he says they will look on the one or on him whom they have pierced. John is giving us an exposition of Zechariah 12.10. And he's actually doing exactly what Zechariah 12.10 does in the second part of the verse. Listen to Zechariah 12.10 one more time. He says, Yahweh says, they will look on me whom they have pierced, but then it changes perspectives, and then it says, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. John takes this second perspective of the second part of the verse, and he applies applies the entire verse to Jesus because he's now literally looking upon God who is hanging on the cross from the human 
perspective. And as John is doing this, he directs our attention to Jesus on the cross to show us that the text of Zechariah 12.10 is speaking of Jesus. And the implication of this is massive. It's monumental. John is saying that Jesus is Yahweh and that Yahweh is Jesus. And this is not the only time that John equates Jesus with Yahweh. In John 12, 41, John writes about the vision of Isaiah in Isaiah 6. And John says there that the person that Isaiah saw when Isaiah saw Yahweh, the person that Isaiah saw was Jesus. John says in, verse, in chapter 12, verse 40, 41, these things Isaiah said because he saw his glory, that is Jesus' glory, and he spoke about him, that is about Jesus. Well, if you go back to Isaiah chapter 6, you will see that the text is explicit there that Isaiah sees Yahweh. Isaiah 6, 5, Isaiah says in this verse, he says, Woe is me, for I am ruined, for my eyes have seen the king, Yahweh of hosts. So now, in John 19, verse 37, John further demonstrates this theological principle that Jesus is Yahweh by equating Jesus and Yahweh with respect to Zechariah 12.10. There is no way to avoid this. Jesus is God. And what we see then is we see Jesus as God and as man going to the cross and dying on the cross for sinners, for you, for me, for all of the sinners throughout history who repent before God. This is what God does in order to save sinners. In order to save sinners. And this is actually our final observation. The despair of Israel. The despair of Israel. The death of God means that there will be life for Israel. And they will receive this life through the despair and through the repentance that they express before God. Both national repentance and individual repentance. After the Israelites realized that they crucified their God, that they crucified their divine Messiah, despair completely takes over them. It completely overwhelms them. And this is the despair that leads to repentance. Remember that Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7, verses 9 and 10, that there's a sorrow that leads to death, and then there's a sorrow that leads to repentance. Well, Zechariah shows here that the sorrow of the Israelites brings about repentance and brings about the salvation from this despair. And Zechariah 13.1 actually captures this when it says that a fountain is opened up for sin and impurity for the Israelites, meaning that they are cleansed from their sin. Now, this repentance is expressed by the Israelites in various ways through their despair. First of all, we see that 
the despair that they experience is over the death of God. Zechariah 12.10 says that they will mourn for him, that is God, as one mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him, that is God, like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. The people are weeping over the fact that they killed God, that they're responsible for this. And I already said previously that the way that God dies, the only possible way for God to die is for him to become man in the person of Jesus. But understand that when you look at this passage, Zechariah 12.10, the emphasis here is that God dies. That is what Zechariah is bringing out, that God is killed and that God dies for the sake of the sinners. Secondly, we see that the despair of the Israelites is so intense that only the most horrific personal or national tragedies can try to express how deeply the people grieved. It says that they mourned over an only child, meaning that the family line can't continue because the only child is dead. Think about Genesis 22. Abraham offering Isaac or preparing to offer Isaac. If he offers Isaac, if he kills Isaac, there is no more progeny. There is no way that that line can continue. If Isaac dies, there is no way for the line of Abraham to carry on. And that's how they're weeping. Then it says weeping bitterly over the firstborn, meaning that the inheritance, the double inheritance that is supposed to go to the firstborn and then carry the name of that family forward is cut off. This double portion becomes no portion because the firstborn is dead. Then it says it it will be like the mourning of Hadad Rimon in the plain of Megiddo, which refers to the mourning of the righteous King Josiah. King Josiah in the history of Israel was one of those righteous kings who offered a glimmer of hope to the nation of Israel. He found the Torah that was being neglected. He restored the temple and the practices of the temple. He restored the Passover. He got rid of the false uh, priests and the false idols out of the temple. But then suddenly he was killed in battle against the Egyptian king Necho. And this brought tremendous grief to the people. And Zechariah says that they will mourn as if they're mourning for this righteous king. Zechariah brings all of these images, these images of tragedy, to show the fierce and the intense suffering that the people will experience when they realize that they are responsible for the death of God. Thirdly, we see that this despair will be national. It includes all of Israel. Verse 12 says, And the land will mourn, meaning all of the land. And then verse 14 says, all the families that remain will mourn. In other words, this is not a regional revival. It's a full-blown national revival. That is going to be the level of the repentance of Israel. And then fourthly, it says that this despair is also individual. Not only will the nation as a whole repent, but each person within that nation will repent. Verse 12 says, each family alone will repent. And then verse 14 says, 
each family alone will repent once again. And then to develop this point, Zechariah begins to list various categories of families that will repent. He says that the family of the house of David alone and their wives alone. And this is the royal line. You know, sometimes it feels like the rich, the famous, the powerful, they're the hardest people to reach with the gospel. And in a way, rightly so, because Jesus himself says that it's easier for the camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Right? Jesus says this. But in this case, Zechariah says that the royal line, the rich, the famous, the powerful, they will repent. Then Zechariah says that the family of the house of Nathan will repent and their wives will repent. And the family of the house of Nathan is the line that came from David through Nathan. The royal line went from David through Solomon. And then the non-royal line went from David through Nathan. And so by listing both of these names, David and Nathan, Zechariah includes the entire house of David. He says that royalty and non-royalty will repent. Then Zechariah says that the family of the house of Levi alone and their wives alone will repent. This is the priestly line that went from Jacob through his son Levi and then all the way to Aaron and through Aaron's sons. And what this shows is that no one is good enough. Even the priests must and will repent. And then again, later Zechariah says that the family of the Shimeites will repent alone and their wives alone. And this is the non-priestly line from Levi. So just like Zechariah said that there's going to be the two lines, the the royal line and the non-royal line from the family of David, so the entirety of the family of David will repent, so will there be two lines, the priestly line and the non-priestly line from the family of Levi that will repent. Again, all of them will repent. Now, with each of these groups, we see that the wives will weep alone. What does that mean? Well, the fact that the wives are mentioned separately from their husbands means that the the husbands do not represent the wives in this act of repentance. The wives are doing this on their own. Each and every person is acting out of their conviction out of their belief, and out of their own relationship towards God. And then as part of this focus on the individual repentance within Israel, notice as you look at this passage, notice that simple word, but a dominant word that is repeated over and over and over. The word alone. Listen to verse 12. And the land will mourn alone, each family alone, the family of the house of David alone, and their wives alone, the family of the house of Nathan alone, and their wives alone, the family of the house of Levi alone, and their wives alone, the family of the Shimeites alone, and their wives alone, all the families that remain, each family alone, and their wives alone. The word alone, if you've already counted, appears 11 times in this passage. If you want to emphasize something, 
you will repeat yourself two times or three times. When a passage repeats itself 11 times, it's saying, do not miss this point. Something massive is about to happen. And this massive event is the thorough individual repentance of all of the Israelites. Every time it says alone, it's as if you see an individual person repent. He alone will repent. And she alone will repent. And he alone will repent. And she alone will repent. And it goes on and on and on. Zechariah wants us to understand this, but he also wants us to see this with our own eyes. This will be the result of the despair of Israel. Every person will personally respond in repentance to the death of God that God will direct them towards. So as we see this, what we can ask, do they say when they repent? What are their words? Well, what do you say when you realize that the one that you've been waiting for all of your life, you're responsible for killing him? What do you say when you realize that you're responsible for the death of God? Isaiah 53 as a whole captures this repentance of an Israelite who at first rejects God, but then realizes that God is his source of salvation. And in Isaiah 53 verse 5, this repentant Israelite says the following. He says, He, the Messiah, was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our peace fell upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. That will be part of the prayer. And then Zechariah 39 records the climactic point probably of this prayer, of this repentance of Israel. In Zechariah 39, God says, They will call on my name, and I will answer them. I will say, They are my people. And they will say, Yahweh is my God. Remember doubting Thomas after Jesus rose from the dead and after he appeared to doubting Thomas? He said, Thomas said, my Lord and my God. That's what the Israelites are going to say when they repent and when they realize that God is their source of salvation. This is what the death of God achieves, the salvation of sinners. Well, let me conclude by asking this one final question. When will all this happen? When will the Israelites look to God? When will they repent? When will they recognize him as their God and Jesus as their Messiah? Well, in Matthew 23, verses 37 through 39, this is after the Israelites already reject Jesus. Jesus says, You will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In other words, you will not see me until you repent. The repentance of Israel and the return of Christ is going to coincide. It's going to happen at the same time. In fact, Israel's repentance will usher in Jesus' return He says, you will see me only when you repent. And then the millennium will begin. 
And Matthew, in the same vein, Matthew 24, 30 says, And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. So ultimately, the death of God will result in the glory of God. And so when we ask the question, what, ha- what did God do to save sinners? This is what God did to save sinners, the death of God. He died for us, and he conquered death through his resurrection so that we can have life. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Lord, we thank you that you saved us. We thank you that we can be called your children. And Lord, that we know and we are confident that we have our eternity to spend with you. Lord, like Terry prayed earlier, our goal, our prize is to be with you. That is what we look forward to. And Lord, we thank you that you left the scriptures for us so that we are able to understand your plan, so that we're able to know you, and so that we're able to turn to you. Lord, we thank you, we love you, and we glorify you. Lord, I pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen.